It is certainly a blessing to be able to be gathered together, uh, to be able to hear the Word of God and to be taught it so that we can be more conformed to the image of Christ. And it's my desire this morning that as we look at this chapter, we, we hear some things that may encourage us and stir our hearts so that we can glorify the Lord in all that we do. As you know, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're in um, this where this uh, outline in the book of Corinthians, we're in the section where Paul is uh, correcting the problems that are in the, the Corinthian church. And our book theme verse is in chapter 2 2, I determined to know, to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the lesson verse for today I picked out was verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2 it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And the theme that that I've come up with today is Christians are called to be good stewards of the spiritual gifts and God's grace that has been granted to each one of us. Just as faithfulness is required of any spiritual leader, and we're going to see that in this chapter, it is also required of every believer, of every member of the church. The first section that we're going to look at here, and if you don't have a handout there, there hopefully are some more on the back table if you don't have one. Uh, for the lesson to be able to fill out. But we're going to look at some key perspectives on spiritual leaders, and that's going to be in the first five verses. Please follow along as I read these verses. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court, in fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul was asking here, first of all, for the, Christ, uh, for the believers at, at Corinth to regard him and his fellow ministers in a certain way. And I've, um, I've put here uh, for the first point that they needed to remember the leader's real position, or it has to do with their identity. Who are they, and how should they be looked at by the Corinthian church? And the first thing, uh, when he says the word regard, that means to reckon. It means to establish the value of something by careful evaluation. And Paul wanted them to view him and the other fellow spiritual leaders as humble men sent from God. And he wanted them to see them, first of all, at the end of verse 1, as servants of Christ. In humility, Paul calls himself a servant, and really this means a slave, literally an under rower. You've probably heard this definition before, referring to the lowest, most menial, and despised of the ship's galley slaves. They were the ones on the lowest tier uh, rowing at the bottom of the ship. But not only as servants, he also wanted them to see him, them as stewards. You see there at the end of verse 1, in, in biblical times, a steward would be a house manager, a person placed in com complete control 
of their master's household. And the things that they might be in control of would be uh, finances, the fields, the, the crops, buildings, the food, uh, servants, and sometimes even the master's uh, children. And a great Old Testament example of that, of course, would be Joseph in Potiphar's house. He was a steward there. Notice this is how Paul is defining his responsibilities and those of the other leaders. And he states in this verse that he was to be a good steward over the mysteries of God. Now, when we hear the word mystery in the English language, sometimes we might get confused and think, well, and in the spiritual sense, are these mysteries that some uh, truths of God that God is hiding from the average Christian, and it can only be understood by the higher plane Christians who have the secret decoder ring, and they can figure it out? No, really not. The mysteries in the Bible refer to divine revelation that was previously hidden, but now it's being revealed by God. It's being made known now. An example with that of that would be the, the Jewish uh, believers had an had a, um, incorrect view of Gentile inclusion. And the, for the Gentiles to be included in God's redemptive plan is something that was made known and revealed more in the New Testament, a mystery being unfolded. And here in verse 1, mysteries is used in its broadest sense. Paul was entrusted with God's full revealed New Testament truth, and he was to oversee and dispense God's truth as the Lord's slave and as the Lord's good steward. But secondly, in this section, he wanted them to remember the real standard or what is the real requirement for leaders in the church. And we see in verse 2 that that word is trustworthiness. It, that is the key in the role of God's stewards. The steward, of course, needed to be faithful with the master's possessions that had been put into his trust. And if he was unfaithful, he could ruin the household through theft or misuse of funds, and the master could lose everything. And the Lord requires all of his teachers, all of his preachers, all of his leaders, spiritual leaders, to be consistently obedient in preaching, living, guarding, and passing on the truth to the next generation. MacArthur in his commentary says, God supplies his word, his spirit, and his power. All the leader and the preacher can supply is his faithfulness in using those resources. And faithfulness is not only required of leaders in the church. We might think, well, they're, they're the only ones that need to be trustworthy, and that would be an incorrect uh, assumption. It's not just for ch uh, church leaders, but all church members too. Notice our individual responsibility as believers written by the Apostle Peter in this verse. And when that verse bounces down like that, I got that from Dwight Custis. I like that. It's that, that power, boom, the Word of God. And each... As each has received a gift, this is a partner's verse, we've all received gifts. What are we to do with those gifts? Well, we're to serve one another as what? As stewards of God's varied grace. We also are called to be good stewards of the spiritual gifts and grace that God, God has granted to each one of us. Just as it was required of spiritual leaders, it's also required of every believer or every member in the church. This is not optional. And when our Lord Jesus returns, each of us will be accountable to him for the gifts, for the talents, for the abilities, for the possessions that God has entrusted us with during our lifetimes. And I do hope that you purposely, intentionally 
do what you can, looking for ways, praying for opportunities to increase what the Lord has given you so that you will have something to show for it upon his return. So slaves and stewards, that's the position, slaves and stewards. The standard is, uh, is faithfulness or trustworthiness. And then he also wanted them to remember the real verdict. Or what about the evaluation of spiritual leaders? Who is to, who is to evaluate their ministry and who is to evaluate our ministry? In verse, verses 3 through 5, Paul touches on the subject of spiritual leaders' evaluation. He never bragged. He never placed himself above other leaders or Christians. And we should follow this same attitude in that it should be a very small thing when anyone evaluates us or our spiritual ministries, when we are criticized, when we are scrutinized by, he says, by three different approaches, by you, the church, or by any human court, the world, or in fact yourself. Whenever we are examined, that that exercise might be helpful in that it points out areas in our lives that we need to work on. But the more important thing to remember is that no human being is really qualified to determine the quality or the legitimacy or the level of faithfulness uh, of our work for the Lord Jesus. And he's going to get that, uh, get to that because he's going to say, when the Lord comes, he will, in verse 5, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Only the Lord knows the motives of our hearts. And only he can appropriately evaluate our ministry or what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And what we always need to keep in mind is that what people say about us should not deter us from pressing on in our service for Christ as galley slaves and stewards. And I I always say, don't let criticism or slander knock you out of your spiritual saddle. Just keep on pressing on. And here, Paul's point at the end of verse 4, even if you notice that, if, we, if you missed it, look at the end of verse 4. He says, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The only evaluation that really makes a difference now during our lives and the only one that will matter in the future when we stand before him is the Lord's. We will do ourselves a lot of good if we stop pleasing people and we make it our aim to please the Lord Jesus. This is a favorite verse of mine that helps keep my thoughts correct when it comes to what should we be shooting at as far as a target in our lives? What are we should we be aiming at as Christians? And Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, or we make it our aim, whether at home or absent, whether we're here uh, or away from here with the Lord, to be pleasing to him. That's, that's what's important. And I want to ask a question just to, to finish up this first section. Whose well done do you really want to receive? Whose well done do you really want to hear? Whose well done really matters to you and to I? And really, it should be at the end of, the, of verse 4. It is the Lord's because at the end of verse 5, notice what it says. When the Lord does come and he does examine the motives of our hearts, then each man's praise will come to him from God. So that's the first point as far as Paul wanting how he wanted them to regard them. But the second section here um, is that there's a, there's a skewing going on. There's a problem in the church, of, of course. 
The Corinthians are exalted while the apostles are abased. This is in the second section, verses 6 to 13. Follow along as I read that section. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You, have, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become as a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, are roughly treated, are homeless, and we toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate or to console. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now. The Corinthians were proud and boastful. And if you remember, it was their pride that had given birth to their fact, factionalism. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Remember that in chapter 1. I am of Peter. I am of Christ. They boasted in their human wisdom, and they elevated their, their leaders incorrectly. In verse 6, he stated that in Paul and Apollos, he wanted them to learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you would become arrogant or puffed up in behalf of one against another. Paul wanted them to treat him and other spiritual leaders with respect, yes, but they needed to stay within the boundaries of Scripture. And Paul and Apollos had been previously given as illustrations of what genuine spiritual leaders should be, right? Servants, slaves of Christ who are faithful and meek, not proud like the Corinthians, and stewards who are trustworthy and submissive and not arrogant like the Corinthians. But the Corinthians had colored outside the lines pertaining to their respect for their ministers and had developed factions where they exalted their leaders for their own sakes and not for their leaders' sakes. And these factions resulted in them becoming arrogant in behalf of one against another. And with that arrogance came boasting. And Paul is going to deal with this uh, starting in verse uh, 7 and, and forward uh, there was a commentator named Garland who said, Paul is going to puncture their inflated view of themselves. And in verse 7, he, he, and he does this with questions. In verse 7, he asks them, for who regards you as superior? Or in other words, and this is a good question for us, in other words, who made you king of the hill? I don't know if you ever played king of the hill when you were little, but we did. We lived at the end of our street. We had a dirt pile and whoever could stay on top of the dirt pile was king of the hill. Other people tried to get up, you pushed them down. Who made you, Corinthians, the king of the hill? Why do you think you're better than anyone else in the church? I mean, you've received the same grace and love from God as any other member in the church. You are purchased by the same blood of Jesus as they have been. You are no better. And you are wrong in elevating yourself, and you're wrong in elevating your leaders 
You just don't have anything to boast about. That's basically what he's saying here. And, he, and with a second question, he punctures the, their, their inflated view of the, themselves even more so. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Oh, you prideful Corinthians, he's saying. And this is good for us to remember also. In case you've forgotten, everything that you've received is from God. Your food, drink, the air you breathe, natural talents, education, your ability to learn a living, your mind, your creative abilities, the countries in which you were born. And that's just in the physical realm. What about the spiritual realm for believers, for Christians? Your salvation, your complete forgiveness of sins, your spiritual giftedness, your ministries, your eternal life, God's presence with you as a church, God's word, his never-ending love towards us, and the many, many blessings we experience each day. And since everything we have comes from the Lord and is on loan to us from the Lord as his servants and stewards, what do we have to boast about? And of course, the answer rhetorically is nothing. There's nothing for us to boast on. And, and he, um, he goes on, and that's what this point is here. I forgot to show you what this is. The Corinthians conceit, verses 6 through 8. He goes on in verse 8 to heap on them some feigned praise. He, he toots their horn for how wonderful and great they are. I mean, they have it all. They have arrived. At least that's what they thought about themselves. And verse 8 is cutting sarcastic irony where Paul begins a comparison of the Corinthians to him and the other spiritual leaders as a means of getting them to examine themselves and truly reflect upon their inappropriate perspective of themselves and of their leaders to hopefully bring them back to where they needed to be and they needed to repent of their arrogance and they needed to put on humility. And that's why Paul deals next with, in verses 9 through 18, the apostles' humility. Verse 9, he says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. And Paul shows the Corinthians their need to be clothed in humility. Humility means lowly-mindedness. If you want to write down a definition, lowly-mindedness. It is an attitude that you are not too good to serve and you are not better than everyone else. A humble person has a deep sense of their moral littleness. It's the opposite of the self-esteem that has been come, become so prevalent in our, in our present culture. And so in order, in order to kind of lay it out for them, the comparison that he's going to, sh- to put out here is he's going to describe um, what, who the, the, um, the Corinthians are as compared to who the apostles are. And the first descriptive word that he uses here is, we have become spectacles to the world. Spectacles. One commentator stated that when a Roman general won a major victory, it was celebrated by what was called the triumph. And what they did, the general would enter the city in great military splendor. He'd be led by his officers and troops. And behind them would come a group of prisoners in chains for everybody to see and to mock. And the prisoners were under a sentence of death. And they would be taken later to the arena to fight wild beasts. And that is the spectacle Paul is referring to. In, in the spiritual warfare that Paul was fighting, he considered to, that he was considered to be that sort of captive, that sort of conquered prisoner, condemned to death. And James Moffat translates this phrase, 
God means us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we need to remind ourselves as Christ's servant slaves, the life of servanthood is to be a life of humility where we put and serve other people first and we go to the end of the line or we don't fight to be king of the hill. He says, what he is saying here, we are last, yes, in the world. Maybe that's even how they, they will look at us. And, maybe the, and that is in humility where we put ourselves. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be, learn to be the servant of all. We need to be last. But remembering that we will be made first priority by our King Jesus when he receives us into his eternal glory. So not only spectacles, but secondly, fools. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are prudent in Christ. Paul continues with his sarcasm. You Christians, you Corinthians want glory and honor and recognition. You, you see us leaders as foolish. You are ashamed to wear the cloak of humility, ashamed of being Jesus' slaves. You put us ministers on the lowest rungs of the ladder. You consider us weaklings and dishonorable while you yourselves are prudent. Notice the words there, prudent, strong, and distinguished. And thirdly, the third descriptive word is sufferers. You see that in the word hungry, thirsty, roughly treated, homeless, reviled, persecuted, and slandered. To the Corinthians, the apostles were not only spectacles and fools, but sufferers. These spiritual leaders, Paul and the others, would not be listed in the who's who's book in, at the Corinthian town hall. And while the Corinthians lived like kings, their leaders were living like mistreated, unrecognized, lowly galley slaves. And in 2023, we also need to, take, uh, to humbly take our place in the world that considers the Christian gospel foolishness and believers to be fools for Christ. And like Paul, when these attacks, when the, when the name-calling comes and the shunning comes, when we are marginalized, we don't have any time to be vindictive or resentful or jealous, we can imitate Paul's Christ-likeness in verse 12 and 13. Did you notice it says, when he was reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we try to conciliate or to console. And then Paul has one last word, scum. We have become as scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Scum or dregs are synonymous with the scrapings or the off-scouring clean from a dirty dish or pot when it is thrown away. Um, in high school, I worked at a steakhouse, a restaurant, and every night we cooked a huge pot about this tall of mashed potatoes. It was about this around. So much so that we had to use a big, long masher to mash those potatoes. Well, that pot sat on the stove all night long. And you know what happened, right? It was scooped out from that and served. But at the end of the night, somebody had to clean it, and I had the pleasure of doing that. And down the bottom was not pretty. There was, there was scum there. It was caked on. And it, and it wasn't something you scraped out, put it on a plate to serve to somebody. No, it was detestable. It was to be thrown away. Scum was a word commonly used figuratively of the lowest, most degraded criminals in New Testament times. This was the way the world looked at the apostles. They were considered religious scum. And Paul's, Paul's was a forceful rebuke to these proud, 
fleshly Christians who saw themselves, they saw themselves as the nice-looking mashed potatoes at the top of the pot, while the humble apostle was considered that brown, detestable scum at the bottom. And my friends, no matter what others think or say about us, we need to be reminded that in God's sight, we are his special people. We are loved. We are precious in the sight of the Lord. And the result of today's teaching hopefully should motivate us just to remain humble, to, re- to remember who we are and we're called of the Lord, God's people, and maybe mistreated like that and considered scum, but to the Lord very precious. And stay humble, submissive, and obedient servants and stewards of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to move on to the next section, the role in the model of a true spiritual father. And that's in the remaining verses. Follow along as I read from verse uh, 14 to the uh, end of the, the chapter. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so far, the Apostle Paul has been harsh with them, delivering stern rebukes and sarcasm to turn their hearts and he does this really because he loves them, just as any, any loving father should. If you read 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, around verses 10 through 13, you see another description there where Paul, when he's dealing with the Thessalonians, he, it's like a nursing mother with an affectionate love. And it's like a father who really exhorts and implores them to do that which is right and encourages them to good behavior. The same with the Corinthians, the same with the Colossians. Paul, Paul's heart was, was engaged when he was dealing with believers. He loved them. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to be deceived by Satan or their own prideful hearts or go on living in sinful disobedience. So, so far in this epistle, Paul has described the spiritual leaders as servants, chapter 3, verse 5, as farmers, 3, 6, as God's fellow workers, 3, 9, as builders, 3, 10, here in our chapter 4, 1, as galley slaves, and again as stewards in chapter 4, 1. But in the rest of this chapter, Paul illustrates the characteristics of a faithful spiritual father, and he is going to use himself as an example and as a spiritual father, he is, is he's going to give some attributes or some characteristics that a spiritual father uh, does when he's uh, dealing lovingly with his children. And the first one is that a spiritual father admonishes. You see that in 14a. But, I, but to admonish you, he says, I don't want to shame you, but I want to admonish you. Admonish literally means to put in mind to exhort them, to plead with them to repent 
and to correct their ways. And his goal is not to tear them down, but to build them up. His words are loving words of warning and reproof. Something is wrong within the Corinthian church, and it's his intention to make it right. Paul's desire is to bring about a change for their spiritual well-being. And practically, for us today, anytime the Lord uses you and I to bring someone to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the definition of a spiritual father, not that we birthed them, God, they're begotten of God, born from above, but we were God's instrument used to bring them to Christ, and I'll share a little bit more on that later. We have a spiritual responsibility to disciple them, encouraging them to good behavior. And there will be times when we will need to admonish. It's not all going to be rosy. There's going to be things that are going to need to be corrected. And we should point out unchristlike conduct and harsh or critical spirits or sinful inclinations or any wrong behavior. And the purpose, again, is to bring about a correction and a change that would be pleasing to the Lord. So a spiritual father admonishes, and we can glean from these. We can certainly practically glean from these as those who will be discipling other people. Secondly, he loves, and I touched on this already, but look what he calls them. He's, he says, you are my beloved children. Beloved refers to the strongest kind of love, the deepest love. This is a love that is a determined type of love, a willful love, a love that purposes to serve the object of that love. Even when admonishing, the spiritual leader is motivated by this strong, intimate, affectionate love. We see this all over the place in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And he's, uh, as we're going to see, going to be one that, that, that we ought to follow. This admonition can't be done through humiliation or browbeating or harsh cracking of the whip constantly. And instead, of, instead, a loving spiritual father will be gentle as he or she admonishes in love, pointing the younger child in the faith to the scriptures with the goal of seeing them walk in sync with the Bible, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And when that happens, when, when it's corrected and they're walking in obedience, he or she could say with the Apostle John, I like this verse, 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that's our desire, that, that those that we are trying to help and disciple, that they are those that would be walking in the truth. Next point. Three, he begets. A spiritual father begets. For in Christ Jesus, Paul said, I became your father through the gospel. Your spiritual father through the gospel. Here Paul is illustrating the uniqueness. He says, you can have many tutors. You can have many, um, uh, many of them, but you're only going to have one father. And it's kind of like in the physical realm. There, a child can only have one biological father. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. The Corinthians had many, many tutors in Christ, but only one spiritual father. And Paul was the spiritual father for most of them. He was the one that God used to bring the gospel to them, spent the time with them. They had come uh, to the Lord by his hands-on, face-to-face ministry. They had become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share with you a piercing quote. This... um, this one really kind of put a bunch of holes in me this week, and I trust in a good way to spur me on, to motivate me, and hopefully 
it will do the same for you. And I've got it on your sheets near the end, in the, so you don't have to write this down. It's in the, the last section. But this is uh, from John MacArthur's commentary. And he said, unfortunately, quote, unfortunately, many Christians have never become spiritual fathers. They have never produced any spiritual offspring. They have never led a person to Christ and helped train them in the ways of God. A Christian is one who has been given new life in Christ. And one of the most important characteristics of life is reproduction. Yet many believers have never reproduced believers. In a sense, they are contradictions to what a Christian is. Every believer should be a spiritual father, God's instrument for bringing new lives into his kingdom. End quote. Now, certainly, salvation is of the Lord. It's not us who are saving them. It is, it is us who are the ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are the ones that are imploring them to be reconciled to God. And yet it is the power of God that saves. It belongs to the Lord. And yet we need to share the, the gospel. We need to share the bad news that people are sinners. They, they, uh, they sin willfully and because of that guilty of breaking God's law worthy of God's um, punishment, eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. And that punishment should be eternal separation from God, banishment forever out of the presence of the Lord. And yet the good news is, and I remember um, a, a Puritan said, you must first pierce through with the bad news. With, with, you must first pierce through with the needle before you can pull through the the silk of God's grace. And we need, to, we need to let people know the bad news is, is that they're lost and they need a Savior. But the good news is that there is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who bled and died on the cross for them, for us, so that we could be reconciled to God. And Colossians 1, 13 and 14 said, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That's through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we have that message. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we ought to be about the business of being fishers of men. And I know for some, it'll be some will be 30-fold, some 60, some 90, some 100-fold. It'll be some it'll be few, some it'll be many but it ought to be some that we're leading to Christ. And God is using us to do that. And I pray that God gives us boldness and some divine appointments this week to do just that. And may he be pleased to use us in that, in that capacity. Well, I've got to move on with this outline. A spiritual father, he also sets an example. That's um, in verse 16. If you notice in this chapter, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. And there's another verse that I like in 1 Corinthians 11.1 because it adds a little bit more detail. Be imitators of me, Paul said, just as I am of Christ. And I'll touch on that in a minute. Imitate. The Greek term is the equivalent of our English word to mimic. One commentator said what Paul expected the Corinthians to imitate are those things that would end their boasting and factionalism. Isn't that good? Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at Timothy. Look at the other servants and do what they're doing. Have the same attitude. Minister as they're ministering. Follow their lead as they follow Christ. 
And you will deal with and you will get rid of your factionalism and your pride. Because Paul, as he taught Timothy, and that's why he sent Timothy there um, in verse 17. Because Timothy was following Paul's example as Paul was following the Lord's example. By God's grace, Paul modeled Christ-likeness. He, and he boldly exhorted them to follow his examples. Spiritual leaders are to be just that, right? Leaders. They lead, God's people follow. And leaders are good leaders, first of all, because leaders have first be- learned how to follow. The Apostle Paul is saying that here. He could, be, he could ask others to follow him because he was a good follower. He was following Christ's pattern, the original pattern established by the Lord. And spiritual leaders are God's gift to the church. And one commentator said, since all believers are imperfect, they need examples of less imperfect people who know how to deal with imperfection and who can model the process of pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness. And Paul was that type of model. Now, let me ask you this question. Here at Countryside, are Tom Pennington and Jonathan Anderson or Justin Turner or Chaz Morse or Brian Chandler or Dwight Custis or any of our other elders or pastors, are they the only ones that are responsible for living an exemplary life that others can follow? Of course not. We know the answer to that. Paul, Paul was exhorting all of the members of the Corinthian church to follow him as he was following Christ. And in so doing, they would grow spiritually And they too would become spiritual role models that others could follow. I want to challenge you with some questions that challenged me as as I was studying this. Are you currently living in an exemplary Christ-like way that you would be a good example for someone younger in the faith to follow? Would God be pleased if someone else modeled your attitudes, your speech, your spiritual behavior, your life choices. What if the elders of countryside came to you and placed under your care a young believer, someone for you to disciple? That person would be following your spiritual lead. A year later, would they be spiritually better off after having spent time with you? I trust that that would be your desire. I'm not talking about perfection but going in the right spiritual direction. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, they see it, and they, you're a model for them to be able to follow. And as you're following Christ, they're following you. That's discipleship. That's what, that's what partners one-on-one is about, and that's what one-on-one partner, um, discipleship should be like in our church. And I trust uh, that God would give us all grace so that we set a good spiritual, healthy example to other. Well, I've got a couple more points here. Number five, he teaches. A good spiritual father teaches. We know Paul faithfully did that. He was in Corinth for 18 months. He was a good steward of the mystery of the truths of God. He taught them. They received his teachings. They were grounded. There's no doubt about it. They knew the Lord. They knew the scriptures. Yes, they had a lot of problems in the church, And these truths were the same truths that Paul had read and taught and explained everywhere and in every church. It was important for the Christians to get it. So the Apostle Paul was always wanting to to clearly present the gospel, to clearly present doctrines to them so that that it would counter the wisdom of men that was uh, coming at them in the church. And 
I do encourage you when you are helping other Christians through a circumstance or difficult trial or you're discipling others, that instead of your opinions and my opinions, use Scripture. Use the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is sufficient to transform lives, isn't it? In Psalm 19, you can go and study, look, take a look at that this afternoon. Psalm 19 tells us that God's word restores the soul, it makes the simple wise, it rejoices the heart, and it enlightens the eyes. Use scripture as you're, as you're dealing with people. Lastly, the spiritual father dis- disciplines. Notice at the very end of the chapter, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? As I said earlier, There are times when spiritual fathers, and this can be men or women who have led others to the Lord, just like natural fathers, need to discipline their children. If they love them, they will do what's spiritually necessary to correct the wrong direction or the wrong behavior that the believer could be going in. It's not loving to allow another believer to continue in sinful, disobedient lifestyles. But a loving spiritual father will say things like, hey, you are walking contrary to the word of God. Or your attitude towards others needs to change. I see that you're harsh and you're critical. You're not forgiving as you ought to be. As the Lord has forgiven you, you're not forgiving others in the same way. Your testimony is not Christ-like. Or you are not living according to the biblical principles that you've learned here at Countryside. And again, the goal is not to destroy. The goal is, is it's to reclaim. The goal is not to shame, verse 14. But as he admonished them, he is putting them to mind of who they are and how it is that they are to live. His desire is, is that they would put away their sin. They would follow him as he followed Christ And that would make them more effective servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of this chapter, there's a question in the minds of some of the Corinthians. Is uh, Are we going to get away with our, our disobedience? I mean, Paul's not here. He's not here presently. And though he was removed from the Corinthians... Um, And in that, some of them had become arrogant in verse 18, maybe thinking they would never see Paul again. So in their pride and their self-will, maybe they thought that they could get away with their disobedience. And they thought it was highly improbable for Paul to visit. But he told them, he finishes the chapter by saying that if the Lord wills, he did plan to visit them again. And his first order of business would be to call the bluff on on the blatant backsliders. And he would discover not their words, not what they were saying of those arrogant ones, but their power. Did what, did what they were doing and what was going on in the church, did that demonstrate the power of God or was it fleshly and prideful? Which it was, and Paul, Paul knew that. Of course, that's why he wrote to correct them. He would challenge those. If he came, he would challenge those that were sinning against the Lord and sinning against each other but out of love, he had to discipline them. And if we ever find ourselves in the same position as spiritual fathers, as mature believers desiring to disciple, to help uh, those that are younger in the faith, those that we've led to the Lord, we too must lovingly correct those that are put in our charge. That is the mark 
of every godly spiritual father. So we see these marks. We see these, we see these um, characteristics. We see the difference, the comparison between who the Corinthians think they are and who the apostle says that they, they are and how, they're, uh, how they, um, they're taking their proper place before the Lord and in this world. And then lastly, we see the, the model here and the, and the role model of the true spiritual father for these things for us to be able to glean from. Our application today is just a review of some of these things. First, hold our spiritual leaders in high regard, keeping in mind that they are God's humble servants and stewards. We saw that in verse 1 of this chapter, servants and stewards. And Paul wanted them to regard him, them as such and not exceed the scriptures, not elevate them as leaders, but elevate the Lord and, and anything that, any praise that they receive, it would because Paul, as he said, he'll tell them in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's not my power. It's not my might. I'm doing what I'm doing. And I have the ministry that I have and the results that I have by the grace of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 is a good reminder for us on how it is that we should treat our uh, leaders in the church and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Being careful, of course, not to exceed what's written in Scripture when it comes to our relationship with them. Secondly, make it your aim to please the Lord Jesus and not men. The only evaluation of our lives that matters is the Lord. So in all that we do, all of our motivations... It should be, our motivation should be to promote the Lord and to promote his work and not ours. To glorify the Lord and not for us to get the praises. It should be for the betterment of others, their well-being, and, and not for ours. To, for the Lord's horn to be tooted and not our horn to be tooted. Make it our aim to please him. And of course, the verse that I like there is that 2 Corinthians 5, 9 Make it your aim to be pleasing to the Lord. I added another one here, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. You could jot that one down. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And again, the question, whose well done do we want to receive? Whose matters the Lord Jesus' does, of course. Number three, pray that God gives you divine appointments and boldness with the lost so that you will be his instrument to share the gospel and lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let us be about Jesus' business of being fishers of men. Matthew 4.19, a very simple verse, but this, this verse has convicted me ever since I became a believer because it says, Jesus is saying, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And if we are claiming that we're following Jesus, we should be catching men on the fish hook of the gospel. We should be, we should be instrumental, being instruments in God's hands to do the, just that. And maybe it is because we haven't tried. Maybe we have been disobedient and haven't been faithful in, in sharing the gospel. And we need to, re, need to repent, and we need to be about that business of doing that. And sometimes... It's just wait upon the Lord. Discharge your duty. Share the gospel. Lead the results with the Lord. Paul said in the previous chapter, you know, um, some water, uh, some plant and some water, but God is the one that gives the increase. I put that, uh, that quote on your sheets for your 
uh, future prayerful consideration. And fourthly, every Christian should set an example for young believers to follow. Intentionally pursue Christ-likeness so that others may follow you as you follow Christ. And there's uh, the Apostle Paul's verse that we're going to get to in a few weeks in chapter 11. Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. I, um, I, I pray that you pray for opportunities to serve others here at Countryside in this way by way of discipleship, being a good example for them so that they can follow you. Shall we pray and commit, um, commit our thoughts and our time to the Lord? Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you've given us your word. We don't have to come up with, we don't have to devise what it is that we're to do and how it is that we are to live as your dear children. You've made it perfectly clear to us. And we need to remember that we are the galley slaves and so thankful that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness. And you've done a wonderful work in our hearts and we praise you every day, Lord. We give you the praise for all that you've done for us in Jesus the wonderful gift of our salvation. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be able to serve you. And Lord, yes, maybe mistreated, maybe marginalized, maybe considered as scum or dregs or those that are, that are to be set aside, yet we're precious in your sight. And we thank you for that. And help us to mimic Help us to follow the example of the Apostle Paul as we see and glean from the pages of Scripture these hearts' desire to love, to admonish, to teach, and uh, to beget, and to set good examples, and certainly uh, to, to be those that would bring glory and honor to Jesus. And we thank you in his precious name. Amen.